Welcome to the Portfolio Playbook, presented by Flex Networks, which is modernizing, simplifying, and revolutionizing the engagement experience between asset managers, wealth managers, and financial advisors. In each episode, we'll bring you valuable insights and perspectives from an array of key players in financial services and technology, including the ones you know already and the ones you should get to know. Tune in to hear what drives these firms as they create compelling offerings for today's markets. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone, to a special episode. I'm your host, Mark Spina, President and CRO here at Flex Networks. It's awesome to be joined by two uh, very special guests today, Tim Kressel and Brian Moran. Tim is a principal of the Distribution Insight Team at Broadridge, based in Boston, Massachusetts, with leading financial services providers to translate data into meaningful actions that improve business outcomes. Uh, combining unrivaled distribution data and extensive advisor research, Distribution Insight in integrates uh, unique view of the customer landscape with client business goals and data to create a bespoke segmentation strategy and client journey map. Tim, that sounds awesome. We're going to look forward to exploring that further. <clears throat> Brian, as many of you know, is the CEO and founder of Flex Networks. Flex Networks has revolutionized the engagement model for asset and wealth management firms and financial advisors. Prior to launching Flex Networks, Brian had multiple senior leadership roles where he helped guide teams of financial professionals at Newberger Berman and AMG to more than 100 billion in sales. During his 20 plus year career, Brian has broad perspective developed over his extensive executive roles within the distribution ecosystem. This is a powerhouse duo or duet, and we're going to get right into the conversation. So Brian, you recently wrote about disrupting the status quo. Uh, let's start out with uh, an unabashed and kind of unfiltered discussion on how Flex is playing this disruptive role and why you've embraced the position of a disruptor. Well, Mark, thank you first and foremost, longtime listener. Happy to finally be on one of your podcasts, my friend. It's, uh, it's exciting to be here, and Tim, thanks for uh, taking time to join me on this. Uh, all right, Mark, so disruption. When I yeah. think about disruption and from the quarterly podcast or the quarterly perspective uh, that we recently put out, I think of disruption happening for really two reasons. One being the experience that's in place for customers is unsatisfactory, mm. or two, the economic incentives don't align any longer. And if you really think about our industry right now, and by our industry, I mean asset and wealth management, both of those things play out, right? And it's sort of ironic, because if you think about asset management, wealth management, Wall Street, it's where innovation actually begins. And I know that may sound cheesy or corny, but sure. go all the way back to like the, the start of the New York Stock Exchange. This is where innovation happens because you're investing in it. Yet when you look at the architecture, of the relationship between asset and wealth management. It's archaic, it's ambiguous, it's fragmented, and frankly, it's outdated. And so when I look back at why, you know, why Flex was necessary, it's because there is an opportunity, there's a time in the market where we could actually go out and build something that could 
could potentially take the industry to its next stage of its life cycle, which could be a more modernized, tech-enabled, tech-forward approach? Hey, if I knew you were going to give answers like that, I would have, I would have had you on sooner. Well, I listen, I got a whole I'm, I've been waiting two years, Mark, so I'm excited just to get in here today. So I'm going to make every second count, but I don't want to take from Tim's time. All right. Uh, Tim, <laughs> any any initial. Thank you, Brian. Uh, any initial reactions to, to Brian's comments? No, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Right. One of the challenges that we certainly have in our practice and in our industry is there's a tremendous amount of institutional momentum. Right in continuing doing things the same way that we've been doing them. And I would argue our industry still is innovative in a lot of ways, right? But a lot of that innovation has really been centralized more on the investment side, right? The product side of what we do. And I don't think as much of that has bled through to the traditional distribution and marketing side. And so I think we have a lot of that institutional momentum over time of, well, we've been really successful in doing things the way that we have traditionally, as measured by revenues have continued to rose, margins have remained high, people have made a tremendous amount of money. However, we're really at that inflection point, Brian. I couldn't agree more with that, where the economic picture is starting to deteriorate a little bit. You can see it just in even the survey work that we yep. do, where asset managers are really concerned about margin pressure on the business. They're concerned about the move to passive. Wealth managers are concerned about the pace of change, the pressure of regulation, the pressure, the pressure of you know, technological innovation and keeping up with that. And frankly, you're starting to see the cracks emerge in the satisfaction from investors, from advisors, from gatekeepers, right? Where the traditional model just isn't working anymore, primarily because people get a different experience, an elevated experience, a more bespoke and customized experience in other areas of their lives that they're now not necessarily seeing as much here. And so I think there's a lot of firms that are looking to try to innovate, but it's challenged in an industry like ours, which is heavily regulated, does have kind of institutional norms and standards. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, right? Is it revolutionary? Is it evolutionary? What's the right balance to be able to get us from point B or from point A to kind of the point B that everybody knows we need to get to, but it's a matter of the path that we take there. You know, Tim, I, I completely agree with you too on that. I think obviously fees and margins are the ones well understood. I think they're talked about a lot and it's finally that pressure is finally being felt across the industry. I think two other things that jump out to us a lot when we talk about this, this transition, it's the engagement model itself. It needs to adapt more to the B2C experience. I mean, I, I think about it when we were building, as we've been building Flex, we've had this mindset of how do we get things to feel like we do in our B2C life? Right. When was the last time you went into a bank branch? When and not that there's anything wrong with going into the bank branch, but when was the last time you did it? Right. When was the last time you actually called a realtor before looking on realtor.com or Zillow? When was the last time you potentially even uh, bought a car by going to the lot first versus seeing what's on the website or auto trader? Right. The entire world of our personal lives has gone to this. Give me as much data and information as possible. And then when I need that expertise and that experience at the end, I want it there or I won't come back. And that's honestly what we're trying to deliver. But the second part of it is, I think the the greatest innovations you hit on, there've been tremendous amounts over the past 10 years, 15 years. I actually think though, the tech stack needs to be deconstructed. I think there's so many things that have been created, 
so many narrow verticals that are being solved. And I'm not saying that those pain points aren't real. What I am saying, though, is that to build a business off a really narrow vertical and then expect people to pay those that, that margin component and all those other things that come along with it, I think it's completely bust. I think, uh, and I know that's pretty direct and it's not necessarily the right, uh, I mean, the most sophisticated language, but I, I fundamentally believe the model needs to be deconstructed and it has to be repositioned the way that it communicates, integrates, and operates seamlessly for the user's experience to be better. In, yeah. in many ways, Tim, Brian, my, my job on this podcast is to get the conversation going and then get out of the way. I feel like I've done my job. Let me just make a, a bridging question here, though, picking yeah. up on Tim. You you talked about something in the context of institutional momentum or the lack it, it, that that could uh, manifest itself as momentum or inertia to stay in kind of one place. Brian, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to bring you back to another uh, topic you've written and talked about and that you you must receive pushback from fill in the blank departments due to a perceived threat to their role or responsibility and i think that's the institutional momentum that tim is uh is referring to in some ways that fear is justified more often though it's misplaced how do you how do you and how does the the flex team deal with institutional momentum and get people to to sh uh, kind of see a broader perspective maybe this is controversial um but i guess you you want to say things right. that are gonna right and let, make people come back and listen again listen i i don't think the the pushback is due to people not accepting change or not wanting to change or being too complex i think it's pretty straightforward right i think that the the issue is that we're moving people's cheese, right? Mm. We're, we're actually potentially going to be seeing situations where the music stops and people don't have a seat. And I think that's the real hesitation for change. I don't think it's that people, these are, we're in an industry full of some of the smartest people that you could ever want to be in business with. They can figure out all of these things that we're talking about. Slow adoption, though, in my opinion, is due to the, Mark, I think you said it, the inertia or just how things have been because they've been making, Tim said it earlier, making good money, margins are great, you know, it's worked for so many years, so why would we change it? You don't do it until it's too late in many cases. And so that we the real that. battle, the battlefront here is, do we have the fortitude to sustain that that conversation long enough to get people to actually adopt the model of the future? And I, I fundamentally believe we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that there's there's complexities, though, right? Yeah. So I, I agree. I mean, people see the impetus to change, right, and see the need to change given the trajectory, right? That said, you know, you look at, um, going back to your comment around kind of digital distribution or digital experience, the B2C experience, mm -hmm. right, that we're trying to kind of bring to the asset and wealth management world. Yet at the same time, you look at all this research on what advisors value from their asset management partners. Obviously, product is at the core of it, right? They demand innovative, new, and different product. But then right below that, it's I really value the relationship that I have with the wholesaler, right? They get me a lot of value in my practice and business. And so it's a matter of, well, how do I retain that personalized experience and frankly, relationship-driven business that 
people really value within kind of the wealth and asset management ecosystem while still bringing in the best practices from that B2C world. How do I integrate a digital distribution and an in-person distribution experience into a seamless ecosystem, essentially? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that is one of those things that on paper is a lot easier than it is in practice, right? And to your point, it requires a lot of technology to support that. And it requires a lot of really embedded and seamless technology, where technology is essentially embedded throughout the process and facilitating. It's not an onerous part of the, you know, the yeah. process where everybody's entering notes and doing what have you. So I do think that's the complexity. Is there's so many embedded expectations in what people see as the experience that I need to continue to deliver those things while just supplementing in all of these other areas to make a better holistic experience. And same thing the wealth managers deal with in trying to service their clients and you know shift their value propositions. Good points, Brian. Quick, quick add-ons or move on. I, I no no no. I I think Tim I think Tim's right that comp- you know we live in a world with, that is gray and those that choose to look at it as absolute are many times are the ones that are left behind and and I think right. Tim's spot on. These are complex discussions. I think at the heart of it, though, sometimes you you do have you do have very simple human nature components that drive maybe the decision making process and the length of that process. I the question that I constantly come back to is what is the right balance of digital and what is the right balance of human, right? I think we all would agree. I'll go back to my B two C example. I don't want to do everything digitally because if you've if you've ever gone through a fully digital experience and no human involved experience that is around sophisticated um, and complex services in particular, it's hard. It's challenging and it's not really that enjoyable. There is a benefit of calling up a trusted partner, having a discussion. and And I agree with that. But I I also think it's somewhat of uh, it can also be if you're not careful a liar's box item too, right? Where so. the the reason for not doing something you put it out there is a is a hey I'm not doing this because of this. But in reality the data I think is and Broadridge being the world leader and and data on a lot of different fronts I think would point to a lot of these things too, which is. You have 25 asset managers and 25 wealth managers that almost have 90% market share in the industry on both sides of the marketplace. Um, you know, yeah. I, I call I, I think there's there is a story in there, and I'm not sure which direction to go with this story, but the story in there is that I think they can't have the only people with good relationships in the industry. Right. There's thousands of participants who can have great relationships, yet 25 percent or 25 firms on both sides control the industry. I think it tells you that it's more than just relationship and that scale is actually maybe the thing at the heart of what's driving success in the industry. Yeah, couldn't agree more. An unintended and awesome bridge. So Thanks. Let's, let's turn I the try, conversation. I try. I try. Hey, you're doing. I mean, if I knew this would have happened sooner, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, let's let's bridge over to uh, to Tim. Let's let's make this portion of the conversation kind of data centric. To points you've both already made, they're super smart people. 
actively thinking about how to optimize their business. Tim, let's talk about what what they're seeing. What what's we're we're essentially at the end of 2023. How has it shaped up um, from an overall flow perspective? What stood out to you as um, either surprising trends or or confirming prevailing trends that you're seeing at Broadridge? Yeah, so uh, I would say a couple things. I would say first off, you know, the the flows landscape is still fairly robust, especially when we look at the retail channels of distribution. Right, there's a lot of new money that's coming into the industry from new clients that you know are getting advisors for the first time, or from people that have been working with advisors that are putting more money in the market, or from cash that's coming back in off the sidelines to some degree. Although I'll come back to that here in a second. To your point, there's a lot of firms that are really thinking through transformational change in their business right now, um, and the key trends that we see that's driving a lot of that transformational change, I would argue, really relate to a few different areas. From a product perspective, I would argue we're seeing kind of divergent trends here, which is really interesting. When we talk to advisors and wealth managers, they are articulating to us a need for more simplicity. I want to streamline the asset management part of my business, right? I want to streamline the money management part. I want to work with fewer providers, have fewer relationships, and really kind of to some extent outsource more of the money management to the professionals so that I can spend more time with clients. Now, on the flip side of that, we talked to them about how they're allocating their money. And frankly, they're allocating across more different product structures, types, models, um, you know, what have you than they ever have in the past. And so they're demanding more simplicity, and yet it's becoming more complex. 50% of advisors are telling us they're going to increase their allocation towards alternative investments over the next two years. 35% saying they're increasing their you know, allocation towards managed accounts. Passive ETFs, active ETFs, model portfolios, both outsourced and insourced. And so all of that lends itself to a really complex product landscape that I think is shaping how firms think about, from an asset management perspective, their go-to-market. From a wealth management perspective, how they think about managing all of that effectively and efficiently across their platform of different advisors and technology they're using to enable it. And then all of that, they're thinking through really critically how to report that to clients so that clients can actually see the value that's being provided outside of just the pure monetary value, right? Returns mm. in areas that people care more about, whether that's alignment with values, whether it's you know returns against specific benchmarks, what have you. And so I think that's one of the kind of mega trends that we're certainly following very closely at Broadridge and have a tremendous amount of flows data to look into. The corollary to that is Asset managers are really thinking through and rethinking their distribution models to better serve advisors in the context of that changing product landscape and service landscape. And so a lot of the asset managers that we work with are really thinking critically about how do I better integrate sales and marketing? How do I bring sales and marketing together into a holistic distribution strategy? How do I do a lot of the things that Brian had articulated earlier in terms of creating more of a seamless process there? And then finally, how do I utilize data and you know the unique intelligence that my sales teams and marketing teams bring to the market together to be able to create the most effective and most efficient distribution strategy and structure that I can? And so, you know, I think that's kind of the the corollary to that as well that we're certainly paying a lot of attention to. Awesome uh, insights, Tim, and again, an unplanned and perfect bridge. Back to Brian, who for real is a, is a data geek at heart 
and uh, are a routine user of, of Broadridge data. So Brian, like when you're when you're when you're listening to Tim, when you're inside the data, when you're talking to managers, what are the insights you're gleaning from those database conversations, and how are you using that to kind of better manage and set expectations with managers? Mark, it's a, it's a great question. I think, uh, and there's a couple ways, a simplicity line uh, that Tim used, not the line, but the, the comment, because I know it's not a, just a, a buzzword. It, it is real though. I think people are demanding simplicity because their life is so overwhelming with information flow and in every direction they turn to. So it is natural to hear that you want something simplified, but you don't want to lose the sophistication that it brings. And I think if you look at the data and, and leveraging the data that we've been able to, to, to access, I think it's, it's pretty, pretty clear when it comes to, in, you know, the product, when it comes to what advisors and wealth managers and asset managers should be thinking about on the asset manager side, it's really straightforward. This is no longer a transactional business like it once was, right? I, I actually think if you leverage the data, you should be considering building a strategy that takes into account that it may look and feel much more akin to what you see from the private equity market in the in terms of a J curve, which means you may be seeing four to five years before a product, after it's actually not just launched, but actually placed on a platform before it begins to break even. The spectrum of personnel impact, right, Brian, but it has economic total totally. impact that has change management and impact, yeah. All of that, Mark. I mean, so if you're look, and I think on the wealth side and the asset management side, both should be with the stuff that Tim has shared and I mentioned earlier. You, you got to really think about it doing it differently, trying to build everything in house and taking on every project in house. I know this is a you know a shameless plug for both of us, but the reality is like to do all of this in house will bankrupt most firms. It just it's inevitable that you can't spend that much money and most organizations on data and the tech required to accomplish the goals that are needed to be achieved in order to compete tomorrow. And so if if I really think about the data, what it tells you is that you need help. Like the data would say that you have to be omnichannel. The data says you have to be perpetually visible everywhere. The data would tell you that right. you've got to give a better access point to people learning about your strategies, your philosophy, your brand. And that's as an advisor, too. It's a really competitive uh, environment for Mindshare. And to do it all on your own, I think, is maybe the mistake that many firms are going to make. And then separately, not not and not uh, setting your expectations appropriately around how long it will take to have success could also be detrimental to the business's long-term sustainability. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's interesting. One of the first questions that we oftentimes ask our clients when we're doing a new project is, um, what's your value proposition to financial advisors? Or put another way, I mean, why should an advisor do business with you? Right. And a deep institutional research to <laughs> deep, that, that's the answer mark in every case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, but I mean, it, it, we get talking to the same firm. We talk to 30 different people. We probably get 30 different responses. Now, that's not true for everybody. Right. Some have very succinct, very you know, kind of clear answers to that. But that that's not the norm in most cases. And so really going through an exercise of understanding what are we good at? What are our core competencies, right? What do we want to Absolutely. lean into from a resource allocation perspective? 
and then strip everything else off and find partners that can help with those things. Because ultimately, what does it come back to in most cases? There's not a lot of asset managers that are technology firms at heart, and that's what they strive to do and love doing, right? They are you know, strong, to your point, research providers, right? They're great at managing products. They're great at managing clients' money. And they're great at distribution in many cases. They're great at telling that story to financial advisors and institutional partners in the street. In most cases, those firms wouldn't tell you our core competency is technological enablement, right? Our core competency is filling out, uh, filling out paperwork in most instances or advisor segmentation. And so really understanding that is the first step to understanding, to your point, Brian, where can we find partners to be able to do these things better? If we're a really solid money manager, it was a great, extremely unique product to bring to market, but we need to build an entire distribution group from ground up, might we be better off finding a partner who already has that and has the relationships that they can help to leverage there? I, I would say, picking up on points you've both made, if, if a firm is strong at distribution, uh, let's start at the top, strong at investment and strong at data and, and strong at distribution. They're one of those small cadre of firms that is soaking up assets right now. If you don't have that double and, if it's an or in, in, in either of those instances, you're, you're in a much more challenge or, or in both. You're, you're, you're in a much more challenging position and in that position, you need partners who can help you with data and or distribution. Uh, let's let's stay. Go ahead, Brian. Mark, you, you hit I mean, both, both of you are hitting on something, right? It's the value prop of the industry. Both sides of the marketplace has evolved where it was 20 years ago, maybe even just 10 years ago, investment centric, right? When we all first got into this industry, alpha was something and alpha was something you hoped for. And, you know, beta costs something. Today, beta is free and alpha is expected. So the, the investment game plan that you would have gone into this 20 years ago to build out your strategy for growth has got, that's just table stakes, right? There's a reason wealth management is so focused on goals-based wealth, you know, goals-based planning versus talking about your portfolio results versus a benchmark. The game, the experience is really much different. And I, I would focus on that word. It's the experience that your client has, whether it be an advisor of an asset manager's products or the client of the advisor, that experience, the service, the, the overall deliverable that comes from those relationships, I think drives much of the satisfaction for the future. Awesome. Let's Thank you. I thought what? it was too. We're coming, we're coming around the home home turn here. Uh, let's accelerate further into the finish. Tim, competition. Who who stands out as doing it exceptionally well and why? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not going to go into specific with specifics with names on that front. Until I get in trouble, uh, especially with compliance. But I can highlight some best practices, right? What do we it. see that are commonalities of firms yeah. that are doing things well? So I would say, you know, one of the, and I'll focus on the asset management side more so than anything, right? Because I think Perfect. that's where my my experience and most of my data certainly is. <laughs> um, so I, I would say a couple of things. One is firms who are really thinking through integrated distribution strategies, right? How are we bringing together 
digital and personal and you know scaled tools to be able to Brian's point provide a better experience. And I think that's critical to that integrated distribution approach is a focus on the client experience, not what we have to deliver to the client, but instead that client's holistic experience with us as a manager. And part of that is putting the client at the center of that journey and then identifying how do we want that client to experience our value proposition, right? And so a lot of firms are starting to make significant strides in terms of their ability to integrate those things and deliver a more cohesive experience to advisors. But at its simplest form, the first thing that they're doing in that instance is identifying what is our value proposition? What experience do we want those advisors to have with us? Then they're going through the exercise of identifying all the different tools and resources they have to bring to bear on that advisor or team relationship and then curating that experience through all of those different mechanisms, right? So I would say that's certainly one of the commonalities that we see of firms that are doing particularly well. Um, the other is really good knowledge of their end client to be able to curate a better experience. So actually segmenting their client base based on the needs of those clients and delivering um, value that are specific to those needs. And so if I know a subset of my client base wants to have certain types of interactions with me, wants information on certain types of products, has certain gaps in their portfolio, that allows me to be able to show up with more timely and more relevant information that can help me to be able to get a foot in the door and hopefully provide additional value and start a conversation with that advisor. Because that's one of the things that's gotten just harder and harder as time has gotten on. To Brian's point, advisors, teams have really concentrated their relationships to some degree in a really with a really limited number of partners. And so breaking through is harder than it's ever been at this stage. And so you really need to have both coordination across all of your distribution resources, but also really good knowledge to help you pick the right intro to that organization, to that advisor, to that buying unit, to make sure that you're going to provide value right out of the gate. Nice. Tim, Brian, how about you? Any any firms either by name or by approach that you think of as having achieved that breakthrough velocity, showing growth, showing dynamism, and from whatever, whether it's a boutique moving up to midsize, midsize to large, large to mega, anything that you see kind of common or differentiated characteristics amongst them? So I won't go into names for the for similar reasons to, to Tim. I don't want to get myself in trouble here. But the there are some I think two things that maybe jump out. One, um, firms that are growing, uh, whether they be boutiques or the the mega mega firms, the big firms uh, that are seeing the my, majority of market share uh, growth over the past few years, tend to have a few few things in common. One being their product has placement, and that placement his on the asset manager side that placement has is optimally set meaning mm. there's nothing that's going to prohibit the end buyer from wanting to work with that product it's not another decision people in the advisor seat the manager research seats the product seats they're they're not much different than any you know anyone else where they're trying to avoid the number of choices they have to make in a day Right? And they're looking that for way. disqualifying like, elements, right? Totally. So don't don't provide them a disqualifying element. Yeah, and the more choices you make somebody have to make, the less likely you are to get to the end of the buying cycle. 
And so if your product has any barrier at all in that process and it doesn't have the right, you're not an NTF platform or you're, you know, you got the wrong share class, your fee doesn't go into the top, whatever it may be for that platform or those advisor sets. Reality is that that is enough of a disqualifier that you see that helping the firms that are gaining share continue. And then the second is brand, right? I would argue the single most important thing in today's investment landscape is your brand. Um, placement is a close number two. Uh, I'll go down the list to get to like relationships because candidly in a fiduciary world, relationships are less <laughs> legally. They're just less important. Like you can't be a fiduciary and just give all the money to somebody who's your best friend from college. You did keg stands with like you got to actually do the right thing. So the number two thing is the placement. Number one, that was brand. And you see it in the data. You see it in the responses to the, the great surveys that Broadridge does. You see it in every every aspect of the business. I mean, take for take a great example. You will have advisors and or manager research teams or product teams leverage big brand names um, who have maybe lesser performance than a boutique or upcoming manager and are maybe even less qualified than that boutique or upcoming manager. But they'll leverage that big brand name because there's less business risk. That brand mm. comes with a sense of comfort. That brand comes with a sense of, well, XYZ firm is doing it. So we're not we're not going too far off the reservation. I'm not going a to recommendation. get fired for hiring film. Totally. Yeah. And, and I, by the way, in the environment we live in, the industry we live in, I know and I, I get it. Like, I totally get it. It's a litigious environment. We live in a world that's much different than 25, 35 years ago. And I grasp, I get that, but what's driving that is the brands, the brand recognition and the level of comfort that is being placed in that brand. So for me, if you look across the spectrum, have you been able to get your brand elevated? Have you put your brand so far out there that no matter where somebody looks, they're seeing it? And number two, have you got the right placement? Because if you have brand and you have placement, I promise you, you're going to find somebody who's growing fast. It's not that complicated at that part of the discussion. Totally agree. Totally agree. But but Mark, you know, uh, and Tim knows this too. The hard part with brand, to many that are in the investment world, brand isn't tangible, right? Right. Brand feels totally. it's just a marketing guy just talking soft. through some like 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 yeah. very soft, shallow things. Like yeah, I get it. I mean, that's I get the journey, sure, but it's it's not really relatable. And the problem the problem is to get brand, you have to be perpetually visible. You have to be, as we talk a lot about, omni-channel in your marketing approach. And arguably, you have to be doing 10 to 20 different things versus one or two things that historically, if you just had a person with a fact sheet and they went out, that was enough. That's not the case. If you want to win, you've got to be going a lot of different verticals. And yeah. if you're not committed to that, you can't be in wealth management. Yeah, it, it presents a dichotomy of sorts to investors in particular in that it requires brand requires creativity alongside rigorous discipline, you know, to to stick with it. A lot of people, Ryan, you could you could get to that point of convincing. So, oh, we need a brand. Let's do it in a quarter. And the reality of it is, it's your earlier point about the time. It's a multi-year J-curve type of uh, investment. So yeah, totally. So let, let's um, let's let's do this. Let me give you each 
30 seconds to a minute to share with our audience what your respective firms are uh, most excited about for 2024. Where do you want to start? Right, Tim? Go, go for it, Tim. You kick us off. You go, Tim. Perfect. So uh, there's a number of things that I'm excited about for 2024. So I, I guess I'll, I'll pick one for the in the spirit of the question, um, which is we've got a lot of enhancements that we're working on at Broadridge to the service that we're providing to end clients that I'm particularly excited about, specifically kind of how we think about advisor segmentation and the integration of that work with broader client systems. So essentially, how we think about creating a more cohesive ecosystem of enablement tools across the Broadridge suite of products that will allow for a more seamless experience and allow our clients to spend less time managing technology, managing tech stacks, managing data lakes and environments, and more time actioning on the insights that they're getting from all of the great information that there is out there today without needing to wrangle through 15 different tools across 15 different vendors. And so I, I'm particularly excited about you know, the work that awesome. we are doing and will continue to do in 24 to bring all that together and hopefully the value that it'll derive or the value that it'll lead itself to for our clients. Exciting. Looking forward to that, Tim. How about you, Brian? So 20 number of things obviously could be excited for in 2024. I'll I'll boil it down to two sides of our house. One, the community uh, and the solutions that the community is providing, and two, the continued advancement of really interesting investment boutiques. So first and foremost, on the community, 2024 is going to introduce some really cool advances on our technology on the application. One in particular is the digitization of the home office to home office connection between asset and wealth management. This single um, this single evolution of our product will not only save hundreds, if not thousands of hours for teams in a year, it will curtail, um, I think over time, millions of dollars of spend. Uh, so extremely excited about what we're doing on that connectivity to what we call the wealth management experience. And you'll see in the first quarter, a number of wealth managers begin to adopt that platform uh, and asset managers begin to leverage that platform's benefits. And then secondly, um, we have a really good uh, set of solutions and investment capabilities, right? And I think when I look at our solution set as a partner to asset and wealth managers, I can't get more excited that we can say to firms, you go to one spot and you can access business services and shared technology or even learn about investment boutiques that you may not have heard of in one location, one destination, one relationship, one invoice, one upload. To Tim's point earlier, we've simplified that engagement model. And I think that to me, as we continue to evolve and expand the platform's capabilities, uh, the, that is a really exciting thing to see continue to take hold next year. So uh, it's both the community development and the advancing of solutions and investments. Awesome. Well, I know um, we, amongst the three of us, we've committed to doing this on a quarterly basis. So let's wrap it here for today. I will leave the audience with a couple of closing comments. At Flex, we're building a network uh, powered by a combination of data, uh, of which we source a great deal through our partners at Broadridge and intellectual capital. And that intellectual capital, I think, is well animated by guests like, like Brian and Tim. We'd all encourage you to be part of the network, consume data, create interesting connections, 
and share amongst the community here. If you found this episode of interest, uh, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And uh, genuinely, we extend the offer to reach out to any of us anytime uh, with your own insights and ideas. And, and we'll look to bring that into an upcoming episode. So until next time, uh, which will be next quarter, thank you, Tim, and thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us on the Portfolio Playbook, where we bring you the latest insights and analysis from top firms in the financial and tech industry. We hope you found this episode informative and valuable in helping you better understand the strategies and approaches of these firms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode for even more insights and perspectives from leading industry experts. For questions or to join Flex for free, visit our website at www.flxnetworks.com. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information contained in this recording is provided as is for educational and informational purposes only and should not serve as the basis for any trading or investing decisions. Flex Networks makes no representations and disclaims all express, implied, and statutory warranties of any kind to any viewer, listener, or other third party. Neither Flex Networks nor any of its affiliates make any endorsement of any particular company, security, product, or financial strategy, and nothing contained in this recording should be construed as investment advice. Investors should undertake their own due diligence and carefully evaluate companies before investing. Flex Networks is a promoter, as defined by the Marketing Rule, Rule 2064-1, under the U.S. Investment Advisors Act of 1940, of the investment products contained herein. For such promotion, Flex Networks is compensated between 5% and 40% annualized of the net management fee of the respective investment products on assets raised, serviced by Flex Networks. Flex Networks is not a client of any of the investment advisors promoted herein.